Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. You know, in Washington, there are many people, including me, who have moved through the revolving door between politics and media many times. But nobody's done so with more success or visibility than Bill Kristol. A leading neoconservative, Kristol started out working for New York Democratic Senator Patrick Moynihan. He later worked as chief of staff for Vice President Dan Quayle. In 1994, he founded the conservative magazine The Weekly Standard. He's been a commentator for both ABC News and Fox News and appears regularly on MSNBC and CNN. And he was a columnist for Time Magazine and the New York Times. However, while a conservative and a hawk, big supporter of the war in Iraq, Bill Kristol's no fan of Donald Trump's. He actually opposed his election in 2016, and since then, he's become one of Trump's leading critics. In December 2019, Kristol and other top Republicans formed a new organization, Republicans for the Rule of Law, to oppose Trump's re-election. How do they plan to stop Trump from getting another four years? We caught up with Bill Kristol at his home in Northern Virginia. Bill Kristol, good to talk to you again. Great talking to you, Bill. So uh, you and I uh, have been on the road several times together, a little dog and pony show where uh, we went out. I was, of course, always the liberal Democrat. You were the conservative Republican. I know you're still a conservative. Are you still a Republican? I ask myself that fairly, <laughs> fairly often. I guess I, I will say I honestly invest less in the party. I mean, I, there are people who, for whom it's really been wrenching to leave the Republican Party. You know, I, a, I was a, uh, I supported a couple of Democrats when I was younger. I was a volunteer for Scoop Jackson in the 1972 presidential campaign. The, the and you worked the for com- what's that? And worked for Dan Moynihan. And worked for Pat Moynihan, right? So I mean, I, it's not. A, I guess I have a little more familiarity with. Uh, supporting people from the other party, at least way back when I was young, but um, and and the you know party is a party. It's it's an important institution in our politics, but it's not something one should be. I don't think excessively loyal to. And anyway, I don't think it's very hard with Trump. He's so uh, you know, look. The the more more important thing than being a Democrat or a Republican is the consensus on the fundamental institutions and norms and principles of liberal democracy. And and there, I do think we, you and I, Bill, really have been pretty lucky through most of our adult life that both parties on the whole have been pretty responsible, pretty attached to those principles, pretty willing to uh, repudiate people on their fringes who, you know, seem to be go outside those norms. And uh, with Trump, of course, everything's changed. And I do think it's awfully important for the country that Donald Trump not have a second term as president. You know, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, I started out working for a Republican, and um, and I find myself regretting the absence of the Republican Party that you and I both knew, right? And I mean, uh, one thing that really is true, I think, is that it's better for the country to have two 
pretty responsible parties that can sort of alternate in power without huge disruptions, without people feeling that if there's a president of the other party, that they're somehow not listened to at all or underrepresented. Of course, you prefer to have a president and a Congress, a governor and so forth of your own party. But uh, we're now at a position though, and it is bad for the country, the kind of polarization we've seen. It was already bad before Trump. The Trump is so much made it worse that I one reason I've been so focused on Trump, some of my friends say, well, there's so many other issues. You studied political philosophy, political science. Why don't you think about the party system or the you know, administrative state or all the other problems in, in our country? But Trump is the kind of the infection that unless he's dealt with, I don't think it's possible really to get back to work or to get to work dealing with other underlying problems, which should be dealt with and hopefully will be. But as we you know, move into the 21st century here, uh, somewhat belatedly, maybe. Um, but uh, you know, Trump really is a challenge to the system. And if you don't like the system, I guess that's a good thing. But if you think that on the whole, the system of, of governance we've had in America has been pretty good for, for, mm-hmm. for quite a while and helped an awful lot of people, it needs to be improved. Obviously, it helped a lot of people around the world. Uh, it's alarming. What happened? to the Republican Party. I mean, up until the time that Donald Trump won the nomination at the convention, there were a lot of Republicans who said, no, this is not our kind of Republican. This is not where we want the party to go. But since then, it's been almost total surrender, almost like a Jonestown. Syndrome. Yeah, that's, that's been striking. I mean, so I think you know, people would say there were, there were problems in the party beforehand. Fair enough, true enough. And Trump sort of is... Uh, brought those to light. But no, but you're right. And a lot of was a lot of resistance to Trump. And, and if you looked at a Romney, Paul Ryan, John Boehner, even Mitch McConnell, Republican Party, if you looked at a Rubio and uh, uh, Bobby Jindal and even Ted Cruz and John Kasich and Jeb Bush, you wouldn't have thought yeah. they're just this party's just going to become a plaything uh, of Donald Trump. I guess there are a few lessons, right? One, presidents are powerful. If he had lost the election in 2016, clearly it would have been a little more like Goldwater or McGovern. You know, that was interesting, but let's get back uh, to, to a more centrist message or maybe a new message, but a fresh message incorporating certain aspects of problems Trump pointed to perhaps. But, but you know, winning the presidency is a very big deal. Then having the power to mobilize the Republican electorate against your opponents is a very big deal. That's something if you think of Carter, for example, uh, he mm-hmm. didn't have. And so there was never that kind of fear of Jimmy Carter that there was of Trump. But of course, Trump is willing to use that fear in a big way. Uh, the, he delivered some policy victories as Republicans, some Republicans saw them and taxes and judges uh, that made people feel invested in Trump. But having said all that, the degree of accommodation by elected officials, the degree to which Republican senators and congressmen think of themselves as Trump supporters, not as Republican elected members of the Senate or the House, the degree to which donors have just really capitulated uh, and other influentials, like a lot of conservative intellectuals too, all of that has really been, I will say, one of the more surprising things of, uh, of this whole episode. You know, you can go back in history and find examples and parallels, but I wouldn't have expected it. And uh, there are a lot of factors going on at once. Uh, the kind of demonization of the Democrats is being controlled by their far left. So you have no choice, the tribalization of American politics. But I, I think the degree of rationalization, the thing, lesson I've learned, I guess I'd, I'd put it this way, rationalizing is a very, rationalization, uh, the, the power to, the ability to rationalize, the wish to rationalize is a very powerful force. You know, people talk themselves into things. They accept one thing, they accept the second thing, mm-hmm. or they think about it six months later, they're accepting things they never would have accepted six right. months ago. 
And then they're sort of invested and it's embarrassing to say maybe you were wrong. And so then you kind of keep on rationalizing. And then here we are. Do you believe that uh, whatever we call it, the, the Republican Party of George W. Bush or Mitt Romney or George H.W. Bush, is that part, can that party ever come back? I'm doubtful. I mean, A, things, you know, life goes on, right? So even if you came back, it would be in a new form, which would be good, actually, maybe. So the way I've been putting it is we're not going to revive or restore anything. Maybe we can create something new uh, out of the ashes of Trump and Trumpism. It requires a real repudiation, though, in my mind, of Trump and Trumpism. So the notion that you can just kind of move on, there's been an interesting debate among anti-Trump conservatives and Republicans over the last week or two, kind of beneath the surface, because we mostly agree and we want to defeat Trump. But uh, George Will had an interesting column. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very smart, of course, and thoughtful. And it's, you know, the day after Trump loses, it'll be as if he didn't exist. And I saw someone else made the same case. Josh Krauschauer, I think, made that case. Jonathan Lask, who, who edits the bulwark, uh, we're defending democracy together, what a very uh, intelligent, younger journalist said, no, I mean, it's still going to be mostly Trump's Republican Party. Now, maybe over time that could be worked out or it could be weaned away from him. But don't kid yourself that if Trump loses, even if he loses by eight or 10 points, that he's, he's not going away. His people aren't going away. The habits of Trumpism aren't going away. And for me, Bill, and you were, you know, a state party chairman, you've been through this in the, at, in, at the uh, you know, the real grassroots level. Here's the thought experiment. In 2022, let's assume Trump loses. Let's assume they lose pretty badly, he loses badly. Maybe Republicans even lose the Senate. In 2022, would it be better to be an anti-Trump Republican in a Republican primary for the House and the Senate? Or would it better to be a Trump loyalist? Or maybe it'd be better to be sort of in between. But I think when you think about that, though, I'm afraid the answer in most Republican primaries in most parts of the country is going to be, you know, you're still going to want to be have the blessing of Trump. And as long as that holds, it's a little hard to see how you liberate the party from Trump. I know this is probably this is certainly worth a book and it's probably a book that you are working on or have already finished. But what is your principal fear or beef with Donald Trump? You mentioned the systems. Yeah, I guess two institutions. I mean, I suppose there are two, maybe ways of putting it, which overlap. One is just his basic character and, you know, just in in incapacity to really live up to what we expect from a president in terms of everything from truth telling to just competence and running the government to a concern for actually running the government in a responsible way. Some of our presidents have been more concerned about that. Some of them have been a little obsessive about perhaps, you know, that. Others have been sort of, you know, a little happy-go-lucky in terms of how the government institutions are functioning and, and concretely. But everyone has been sort of serious about it or had people around them who were serious about it if they themselves had a slightly, you know, distance view. I mean, Trump doesn't care. He's perfectly happy to use institutions of government for, you know, his own personal purposes, perfectly happy to put totally incompetent people in charge or fire competent people. If they tell him, hey, this is not what this part of the government's designed for, which really overlaps into the second major problem I have, which really goes again beyond particular policies, which is the kind of just lack of concern for the basic health of our institutions, his view that it's all his to you, you know, everything's his to use personally as he wishes. Um, Again, that just, it wasn't, I mean, I opposed Trump, obviously, in 2016. I was skeptical during the transition, but I still thought maybe, you know, when he becomes president, uh, when he became president on January 20th, 2017, you know, the, the, the weight of the office will come down a little bit on him. 
And he'll, of course, not be my cup of tea in all kinds of ways. But, you know, he could be somewhat responsible, somewhat serious. And that's really been ast- stunning how there's been none of that. And, and actually, people haven't, uh, well, uh, people, I was going to say, people haven't forced him to be or pushed him to be. That's probably true on the Hill. An awful lot of people, if you think about it, though, he had plenty of chances to sort of mend his ways. You know, Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson and John Kelly and a lot of people said, hey, Mr. President, you, you really shouldn't do this. And and I remember, and you remember this, I'm sure, Bill, six, nine, 12 months in, a lot of people, Trump critics, a lot of liberal journalists were saying, well, maybe this is the moment he becomes president. This is the, oh, yeah. no, he's not used to Washington. He's not used to government. He thinks it's like the Trump businesses, as if he's too stupid to sort of understand the difference. He doesn't want to understand the difference. Anyway, it's Begbie now, three and a half years in. It's, of course, just indisputable that he doesn't want to treat the U.S. government as any different from, uh, you know, a Trump uh, business operation. And... You, the names you mentioned and HR McMaster, I guess I would add to that list. Right. Remember, we called them the grownups uh, in the room, right? And we were so happy they were there because we all felt they were going to make sure that the, the government operated as it should and kind of keep him in line and maybe, you know, turn him around. And they're all gone. Now, that's a really important point. And, and I mean, and we don't know how much damage they stopped in the first two years. Right. I was always among my kind of never Trump friends. There was always, there were always debates. Should these people have gone in? Should they stay? And I was always mostly on the side of it's good that they're there. Don't call them to resign. We want them to be uh, institutional uh, guardrails or demand the institutional guardrails against uh, Trump's just willfulness, both in terms of some really stupid policies, but also just kind of using, you know, the military as his own personal force and, you know, so forth. It's for photo ops. I mean, just think of the things we've seen and, and uh, we're trying to, and um, it is worrisome that they're, they're, they're gone individually. The institutional guardrails are much weaker than they were. Some of them are still pretty strong. Thank God we're in the United States of America and not in, you know, a, Hungary, a recent democracy like Hungary, where these things haven't existed nearly as long, and they don't have the kind of political culture and civic culture, military culture, and all that that we have. But you know, you do see how much weaker the resistance is now. He's, you know, for all that he's a kind of buffoonish and has a short attention span and isn't very good at running the government, he's been pretty determined you know, to cycle out the people who were resisting him and to put in people who would accommodate him. I've got to say he's been pretty systematic almost about that. And now look who he has. And the Republican Senate's confirmed them, or they haven't made a fuss if he's just gone around the confirmation process and has a ton of acting people. So you look at the Department of Homeland Security, which has a lot of assets, kind of police forces, frankly, working for it. You look at the Justice Department, obviously. I think Defense Department still resists more. But you look at the State Department, and you got to say, I mean, you know, what was once, even even a year ago, I think of Ukraine, what he was impeached about. One reason he was impeached is that, in fact, it was hard for him to get the State Department to do what he wanted. Ambassador Yovanovitch didn't really do the, mm-hmm. you know, carry out the policies he wanted. That's why he had to fire. Then Bill Taylor, who we, who we put in, who had previously been ambassador, wouldn't really do what he wanted. And then the Assistant Secretary of State and, you know, and others. That's why you have Giuliani kind of running around on the outside. If you think about the, the kind of the institutional frameworks that were still there and the kind of people who were still there, they're mostly gone, right? And even at the National Security Council, you may not love John Bolton, but you know Fiona Hill was working for him, and he, she's a serious person. And so, I mean, the degree to which we're really in in 
worse shape, I would say, institutionally than we were even a year ago, let alone two or three. And now we're going into an election campaign. We're in an election campaign. And I am, I'm worried about that, too. I'm worried about what he will do that we have not really seen previous presidents do. I mean, obviously, presidents, you know, they use government a little bit to help their reelection. I mean, they do it in ways that hopefully are legal, but, you know, push the envelope a little in terms of maybe, right. uh, you know, the obvious things that every incumbent does. But, but that's one thing. I mean, what, we, what Trump is going to be tempted to do and inclined to do, I would even say, is something I'm not sure we've really been tested by, certainly since Nixon, and really not even by Nixon in a funny way. Uh, so, not a funny way, but I just think he didn't, you know, at the end of the day, do that much more than uh, he was stopped in a way from doing a lot of things. And so, it really, uh, I'm, I'm worried about the next five, six months. I mean, I really think it's going to be a test for our system. Yeah, right. It's one thing to... Uh... Uh, take a trip on Air Force One, which is really a political trip, and you know everybody does it, and and then they say, oh no no, this is official business because we took time out to have a little roundtable or something. That's one thing, but to call out the military to clear the path so you can do a photo op in front of a church is uh, uh, takes it to a new level. Yeah, no, that's really right. And you know the people who complained about, gee, they don't seem to be observing the Hatch Act and the normal, you know. The constraints on political campaigning from the White House. Again, some of those were always a little blurry, but but yeah, I mean, he's so far beyond the normal things that we complained about in previous administrations. And I remember when I was in the White House that we were pretty care- careful about, but occasionally we probably slipped a little and then the media would mm-hmm. say, how can you do this? And the campaign would repay the government for half the cost of the trip, <laughs> you know, something like that. Well, that seems like such another world. I think when I was there, you know, under George H.W. Bush, I was Vice President Quayle's Chief of Staff, Marlon Fitzwater was the press secretary. And I think, I think I've got this right, but this is close to right if it's not exactly right. I believe Marlon, when he was speaking from the White House podium, he would, of course, defend the administration policies. Occasionally, he might criticize some critics as having misrepresented the president, President Bush's position or the administration's position on something. I believe he never used the word Democratic or Republican. He thought that was inappropriate. That was for the campaign. The campaign could criticize the Democratic Party. But he would not say, you know, the Democrats are doing X. You know, he right. might say that I, I think Senator Mitchell has mis, uh, misunderstands what our position is on that. Though even there, he was kind of careful not to attack individual members of Congress and, and others. But, you know, he would make clear what the administration's policies were and defend them. But I mean, the degree to which he was thought it was inappropriate to use the White House as a partisan or political uh, vehicle. I mean, that just seems like another world, obviously. Uh, absolutely, compared to what we uh, hear today. We're going to take a quick break here. We're talking with Bill Crystal, political commentator and uh, never Trumper. Uh, here on the Bill Press Pod, we will be to quick break and then we'll be right back. Today's podcast brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters, those good men and women in our firefighting departments across the land and in Canada under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger on the front lines protecting American families every day, and especially on the front lines in these days of the coronavirus pandemic. We salute them, thank them for taking good care of us, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And we're back with uh, Bill Crystal. Bill, you and... Uh some fellow Republicans, maybe former Republicans, uh, last uh, year, late last year, formed an organization called Republicans for the Rule of Law. What's the mission? What's the purpose? What's the goal? What are you doing? So we have an overall group called Defending Democracy Together, and one of the projects we had was Republicans for the Rule of Law. It is, which has done a bunch of things, defending the Mueller investigation, from defending Mueller from being fired, trying to take people, urge Republicans to take the investigation seriously, uh, urge Republicans to uphold the rule of law in a bunch of areas, including some of the ones we've been talking about. Um, and that's, I think we've done it. We've done as much as we could, and uh, you know, Barr has made it harder now that he's Attorney General, and he's pretty intelligent and skillful at kind of evading the certain aspects of what I would consider the rule of law. That um, we're interested in now, and we've done a lot of work now in the election coming up in terms of trying to make sure that in this pandemic people can vote and vote safely, which does mean some more, more absentee voting, more vote by mail, and the president, of course, is just demagogue this issue, and so I think we've been able to say, hey, wait, we're Republicans. Many of our members, not all, but many will be want to vote for Republicans down ticket. But they want, you know, we need have a common interest here in having a safe and secure election in which people can vote without endangering their health. And let's have the federal government provide some funds and let's have the state governments have responsible policies in terms of absentee voting and vote by mail. The other group that we've more recently started, with a few others, but the bigger one is Republican Voters Against Trump, which is a more explicitly, as it sounds like, <laughs> right. attempt to uh, rally Republicans against Trump. We've done a bunch of videos of people, and they've sent them in, uh, in key states, uh, you know, just volunteering, really, why they might have voted for Trump in 2016 in some cases, or stayed home in 2016 in some cases, uh, and are not voting for Trump this time. And, uh, and are lifelong Republicans, many of them. And those are pretty interesting. I mean, there's a fair amount of research that shows that voters do listen to other voters like themselves as much as they might listen to 
big shots, you know, like Colin mm-hmm. Powell or Jim Mattis or, or slickly produced ads. They have their purposes too, obviously, in campaign speeches. And these videos really, there are, they are really authentic. They're real people. Uh, they, we were obviously out there trying to get, you know, telling them to, urging them to send these, send them in, but they're doing it and they're putting their names on it on them. And uh, I, I'm hopeful that'll have a real effect. I feel like there's, I mean, Trump has most of the Republicans, obviously. But I feel like in the last few months, and really in the last week or two, with the with the the combination of using the police and the military to clear out uh, peaceful protesters, uh, in this case, uh, so he could do a photo op at which he waved a Bible around in front of a church that he'd been to once, I think, maybe at the day of his inauguration. I mean, it was so the combination of the mis the abuse of the military the the misuse of police power against Americans, the 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 misuse, I guess you'd say, the, the of the Bible and the religious imagery. I mean, together somehow, I think this was a bit of a moment, and I don't know, I don't think it moved most Trump supporters, but I think I have the feeling maybe the Trump desertions went up by a few percentage points, mm-hmm. and that's important. I mean, it doesn't take that. He didn't. He barely won. Obviously, he, he, he you know threaded the needle in twenty sixteen, and so some deserters, uh, some Republicans who turn against Trump. Is a big deal. So we're trying to make that. Uh, my colleague Sarah Longwell calls it. A, I think create a permission structure. I think they use that term in communications. You know that you give people. There are people out there. They're individuals. Most of their friends and family are for Trump. You know they're kind of. They don't think he's doing a great job, but they're not sure. Is it okay if I kind of really don't vote for him? Is it okay if I vote for Joe Biden? And we're trying to help those people cross that bridge, which they're kind of, they're approaching, you know, they, they, that they'll do on their own. They, they, they understand that they should think about crossing it. We're trying to help them, you know, cross it. So your target are those uh, disaffected or disgruntled Republicans, if you will. Yeah, who, independents uh, who might have voted Republican. Independents, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think we have much, you know, Democrats will do their job, presumably, and hopefully, <laughs> you, you know more about that than I do. They don't always do their job terrifically, but they did a pretty good job in 2018, and hopefully they can turn out, uh, you know, the Democrats who who uh, dislike Trump massively. But I think they uh, that, that might be enough at this time. Who knows? But it would be very much, very helpful in Pennsylvania and Michigan and North Carolina and Florida to have some, some switchover votes. And it seems to me it's doable in the sense that even if you were to influence you and others, because there's also the Lincoln Project that's out there, right? Um, two, three, four percent of Republicans to actually, even if they held their nose and voted for Joe Biden, that would make a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, if you just assume we're replaying 2016, which isn't quite right, but I mean, right. yeah, it would make a decisive difference. If you actually just got the people who voted third party, mostly for Gary Johnson, uh, the Libertarian, but some for Evan McMullen. Uh, in 2016, a lot of them were Republican-ish voters who uh, didn't like Trump. Obviously, that's why they didn't vote for him, but couldn't quite make themselves vote for Hillary. If they would just go from third party to Biden, uh, that would actually the, the the third party vote was higher than the Trump over Hillary margin. And I think all the three in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and I think maybe Arizona as well, actually. Um, so uh, there's plenty of, uh, even that would make a huge difference getting them to kind of, and I think Biden is an easier sell to, to, uh, lifelong Republicans than Hillary Clinton was fairly or unfairly, and then get, getting a few to actually flip. And so the ads do have people saying, you know, I voted for him. I wanted to change. I didn't care for him that much, but I thought he would shake things up and, you know, he would listen to responsible people once he got to power. 
but I guess I was wrong or, or and so that's a kind of good message for those, for those voters. As you say, a couple percent would make a huge, a huge difference. Yeah. Are you concerned that, uh, that the president could preempt or steal this rug out from under you in the sense that we all thought, and I think he planned to run on the economy. It was pretty clear. Uh, now less certain. So he seems to have switched to, I'm the law and order candidate. I mean, echoes of Richard Nixon, and you are Republicans for the rule of law. I mean, I can see Donald Trump saying, I am the law, right? I'm I'm the law and order candidate. Uh, and everybody else are the lawless, either Democrats or re- some Republicans. Yeah. And again, I think that's a good reason why people who haven't been traditionally critics of uh, you know, a reasonable amount of law and order, if you want to put it that way, or of law and order <laughs> message. Uh, you know, there's a healthy law and order message in addition to Trump's law and order message. Um, it's why I think we can do some good. Now, I do think personally, you know, people like me have probably been, you look at some of the evidence of police behavior over the last few weeks and months and years even, actually, and you think maybe I was a little too quick to give the police the benefit of the doubt in all these cases. Maybe I was a little too... Uh, I mean, getting crime under control was very important, and I think it's a great. It was, still remains a very important achievement of America in the last 25, 30 years. Made possible a lot of progress in a lot of places like New York and elsewhere. But maybe we went a little far in some aspects of it, and you know, we did, I think. And so, I think we maybe have a little more credibility in saying, "Look, some of these protests, these protests are legitimate. Many of their complaints are legitimate. Some of their solutions." are probably right. Some of them, maybe not so much. We need to talk about those. Uh, but it, I think maybe our being there makes it harder for Trump and the Trump campaign to succeed in doing what they've begun already to do, which is make, if you're a critic of the police, you're for defunding the police. If you're Joe Biden and you uh, express sympathy for people who are clearly mistreated in a very bad way by the police, then you're for defunding the police. I think that's ridiculous, frankly. Um, I'm not for defunding the police. In fact, the truth is to reform the police, which we really should do, may cost more money. I mean, you're talking about more training. You're talking about uh, more sophisticated policing, uh, which isn't cheap necessarily. Maybe you want to attract better people, frankly, into policing, and uh, that's you know means maybe increasing salaries, sort of like we talk about reforming teaching. You want to get better people, and we probably should spend more money. So, I think I think Joe Biden will make this case. Actually, he's got a lot of experience on these issues. Uh, I don't think he needs to apologize about. Uh, federal policies under Bill Clinton that got more police onto the streets. Besides, they also tried to move towards community policing and stuff. But maybe it turns out in retrospect that wasn't done consistently enough or, or in a sort of forceful enough way. So long way of saying that I think a, a rule of law message is an important message. I mean, if the, what Trump will try to make the Democrats the party of lawlessness, the party of chaos, you take the worst riots, and there were some bad riots, and the worst cases of, of uh, you know uh, of in, people infiltrating the protests and just using them to loot and so forth, that's what the Democratic Party wants to excuse. That will be Trump's message, and we all need to push back on that, I think. Right. Uh, you mentioned him earlier. I just want to ask you again about how you see the role that Attorney General Bill Barr uh, is playing in the Trump administration in terms of the chief law enforcement officer of this country or in terms of the man who is supposed to, um, whose goal, I guess, is justice for all. I mean, I knew Bill Barr, uh, some, some in the Bush administration and subsequently in a kind of casual way. I haven't seen him in quite a long time. 
I'm a little surprised that he's been so willing to bend everything to to Trump. Now, we don't know what things he might have resisted, to be fair, and, and there's some indications that he's resisted a couple of things. But if you had told me four or five years ago that Jeff Sessions would actually be more resistant to the politicization of the Justice Department or the excessive politicization of the Justice Department, there's always some politics, uh, than Bill Barr, I would have been pretty surprised. But Barr is one of those, there seems to be a whole cadre of people, some of them pretty confident, some of them not so confident, honestly, who are just, this is their moment, this is their chance to come back, this is their chance to, I don't think it's just personal, you know, ambition, this is their chance to, they've talked themselves into believing that there are these terrible threats to the country from the left and the Democrats and the radicals, and this is their chance to weigh in, and it's hard to unmix and, you know, in their own minds almost what's personal ambition and what's genuine belief and what's just sitting around watching Fox News for 10 years and coming to believe a lot of things and frankly not challenging things the way I think they would have when they were younger. Um, it's not an accident that all these Trump people are so much his age. To, you know, I, I think just as a sort of psychological matter, you know, they're, they're sort of their views have hardened in a way and, and they only talk to the people like themselves. And anyway, the, the net effect of all of that is that uh, it's been bad, obviously. But as I say, Barr is one of the more competent of those people, and he's in an important position. So I think he's, I, I'm worried about what he will justify as we go forward over the next few months and on election night and on the day after election, after the election. And, and this is, a, you know, so why it's particularly important for uh, lawyers and judge, former judges and intelligent people who understand how this thing is supposed to work really keep an eye on them. And it's important that they not that Barr not be able to say and Trump not be able to say, well, they're just a bunch of liberal Democrats. How do you feel? Are, do you feel hopeful or confident about 2020 and the chances of Donald Trump not getting a second term? I feel hopeful. I, I mean, I think the odds are pretty good that he'll lose, but I think it's going to be a very rocky few months here and he'll pull out all the stops in ways, again, that we haven't maybe quite seen and of course the russians and chinese right. and others could do things so i remain very uh, worried about both about the outcome of the election but also about the damage that will be done sort of on his way down to the yeah country. and pe- people that you talk to are are some republican particularly republican senators uh getting nervous if you look at the polls i mean not that polls mean that much right now but joe biden is leading even key states like iowa and arizona and ohio uh, not just nationwide. Are some Republican senators getting nervous and thinking he could take the whole gang down with him? I mean, they're not really confiding in me these days. I will, I will admit. <laughs> yeah, I yes, they are not stupid in that yeah. way, and they're nervous. They sort of have semi bought into the Trump mystique that because he pulled off an upset, which he did in 2016, that he has this magic potion that's going to somehow, you know, mm-hmm. reverse the polls and 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 and, and you know, change things radically in the next. A few months and also the senators did go through this in 2018 in a way where it looked like they might lose some key more key states or some key states and they ended up by the net what even plus one i guess um because you know they partly because they just were good states for them frankly and partly because of kavanaugh at the end probably firmed up the republican vote so even though the house was a blowout and the state level elections were a blowout for democrats uh, the senate didn't go in that way so i think i think they've got a little bit of false confidence having held on to the Senate in 2016, even though Hillary Clinton got two and a half million more votes than Donald Trump, holding on in 2018, though the House went, you know, 
had a big Democratic swing, 40 seats. And uh, I, I think they, they're they sort of slowly waking, waking up to the fact that, you know, Iowa has become a more Republican state, but it's not like it's a state that Democrat can't win. And, uh, you know, that one's, that's at risk. And same with other states like North Carolina. And, and so I, I think they're beginning to see that it's a problem, but it's kind of late in the day for them to do much about it. I guess they can try to distance themselves a little bit from Trump, but I don't even know if at this point, at this point, if you want to repudiate Trump and Trump is, you probably have told yourself, I think correctly, really, that, you know what, you sort of need to punish the whole party in this election. Doesn't mean you might not vote for Republican in 2022 or 2024, mm-hmm. but I don't know how much split ticket voting there'll be this time. Yeah. So um, just about out of time, I just want to ask you a couple of couple of uh, questions about uh, Joe Biden. What do you think Biden's got to do? Is it just enough not to be Donald Trump? I mean, I think he needs to be responsible and seem confident. And you know, his two big pitches basically are that he's competent, he'll run the government in a sober, serious, grown-up way, and that he's empathetic. I think that's important. I, I think that was a hidden asset of his in the primaries that people undervalued. Uh, and I think it remains that in the general election. I think after Trump, even people who agreed with some of the policies thought things had to be shaken up. Maybe it's time for kind of a tough guy. I mean, it's just people are exhausted by now of that. And so I think the fact that Biden, they shouldn't shy away from the the empathetic side of Biden. And uh, and then I think, he, you know, the more, from my point of view, the more moderate a Democrat he can appear, uh, a little bit of distancing from the really radical wing of the party. Doesn't mean he has to denounce them every day, but make clear that they're not going to be setting the agenda. I think that would be a good thing. Right. So his um, maybe one of his most immediate challenges, of course, is picking a vice presidential running mate. Um, I'd love to get your take on that. But first, I have to ask you, it's well known that you played a major role back in 2008 in the selection of Sarah Palin as John McCain's running mate. He seemed at the end of his life to have some regrets about that. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wrote an op-ed urging him to pick Joe Lieberman, but then that, when that didn't work, I was okay, I was okay with the, no, that was my column in the New York Times the Sunday before the, I think before he made the pick, a week before the convention. But then, you know, we, I, I was okay with Palin as a kind of long shot. I thought, she, the funny thing is, there was an element of, of truth in what I saw, which is I sort of saw the populist wave coming. I thought she was a way to co-opt it in a pretty harmless way, honestly. And I think, honestly, if she'd been McCain's vice president, it probably would have been kind of harmless. I mean, in the campaign, she echoed McCain. She wasn't going to have her own. But once McCain lost and the whole Tea Party thing started, she really went off the deep end. And people forget when McCain picked her, she had been sort of popular with Democrats in Alaska for being somewhat of a bipartisan mm-hmm. governing. In a bipartisan. Anyway, it's not worth getting into the panel thing. I regret it. Right. She wasn't up to it. And in a way, she did, unfortunately, legitimize a certain kind of know-nothing populism that that really took off after 2008. So you know who the front runners are for Joe Biden. Do you have any particular favorite that you think would do, uh, let's say, be, you know, be most effective in achieving the goal, which is getting Donald Trump out and Joe Biden in? You know, I don't. And one thing I learned, you know, we all learned from the panel thing, I suppose, is, you know, you, these people can look good on and sort of attractive, kind of unknown. And then you more vetting maybe would have shown real problems or, or maybe just actually being through a presidential campaign would show real problems. I mean, I do think the reason people pick, the reason Bush picked a Cheney, the reason Obama picked a Biden uh, is, you know, there's a sense that, look, they've run for president or in Cheney's case, been in the cabinet and, and been, you know, at a very high level uh, of the House, too. And, you know, they're not going to get rattled by the incredible intensity of a presidential campaign. So while part of me says, you know, a governor who's done a good job in the pandemic 
and who's really sober and is governing effectively, I would say, Whitmer in Michigan, uh, Lujan Grisham in New Mexico, Raimondo in Rhode Island, as a governing matter, and as a kind of ticket I would like to see. Biden, of course, is a longtime senator and then vice president. I think that's a good ticket. But I've also got to admit that none of them has been through a national campaign. They've dealt with the press corps. A couple have been in Congress, I mean, Lujan Grisham. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, they're, you know, even in a big state like Michigan, and you know this bill, I mean, uh, from California, even I would say the press corps is just not the same as dealing with a national press corps in a crazy two month, three month campaign. Absolutely. So that's a case more for Kamala Harris or someone who's, you know, been whatever. She didn't run a great campaign, but nonetheless, she's been through it. She's not going to get rattled. She'll do fine, probably. I think, I think uh, you know, one of these House members who's sort of interesting would also be uh worth looking at, but I just, I'm not sure. And they, they really, they need to take their time. The one thing I do think is all that advice about how we should do it early was ridiculous. And look, what, what if you had taken Klobuchar three weeks ago? <laughs> so I, I take your time, learn a lot about these people, uh, pick someone who you, you know, you're comfortable with. Bill Crystal, it's great that you're still out there. Your voice is very, very important. And uh, we thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for taking time for us today. I've enjoyed it, Bill. And I hope to see you soon in person, not just virtually. (laughs) I hope we can get out on the road again someday. All right. Thanks, Bill. Thanks so much. And that's it for today's podcast with Bill Crystal. Thanks so much for joining us. We love having you with us, and we want you there every single time. So it's important to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod if you haven't already done so. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, just pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in the part of the team. And please tell your friends to do the same. Meanwhile, stay strong, stay safe, stay healthy, and come on back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>